Okay, now for our message this afternoon. I have the pleasure of welcoming up Mr. Matt Steele. And I don't know if anybody, whoever was here last year, he was throwing bread and stuff at people, so you might want to duck because it's possible he could throw something at you. <laughs> so anyway, he is coming up to present his message, and it's entitled Unlocking Forgiveness. Mr. Matt Steele. Good morning. I have to make sure what time it is. What a beautiful sight. Beautiful Feast of Tabernacles. You know, uh, before I, I start my message, I wanted to mention something uh, to um, maybe affirm what we're going to discuss today. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was preparing this message. I'm sitting at home. I'm in my office. And I knew what I was already going to talk about because I've been working my way through the Lord's Prayer, as you guys may, may remember that. So for about four or so feasts now here in Branson, I've taken a little section of the Lord's Prayer, and we've exploded it and unpacked it and, and looked at just some incredible things. So I'm sitting there and thinking, oh, I just wish there was a way that I could get the worship team to sing Jesus Friend of Sinners. <laughs> How about that? So I guess God heard my wish. Uh, because it is so appropriate. In Matthew 6 and verse 9, we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Can anybody guess where we're up to? in this prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And as I mentioned before, when we've looked at this in the past, we, we pulled out different elements of this prayer. We pulled out the different facets of what that prayer means in our life. You know, we've, we've explored the greatness of God and yet the fact that he's our father, he's our dad. We've also looked and realized that God wants us to continue to pray for his kingdom to be on this earth. Who wants this kingdom to be on this earth? We want this kingdom, his kingdom, to be on this earth. For this, this little planting of the Feast of Tabernacles to envelop the entire earth. But if you remember, when we discussed that and we talked about it, we also realized that our prayers could actually change things in heaven and maybe even move God's plan a little further forward, maybe bring it a little sooner. We've also explored God's will, that his will be done, right? But not just on the earth, not just in governments and, and over the kingdom of man but in our own lives, remembering not to replace the will of God with our own will, or somebody else's will, or circumstance, but to truly follow the will of God. And we've also seen how all of that is only possible if we eat of the bread of presence, Jesus, the bread of life. That only by absorbing into our spiritual nature, his nature, and his power, can we continue to live out this Lord's Prayer. He is our life and the length of our days. 
So now we turn to this next line. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a pretty simple phrase, isn't it? It's not very complicated. At least on the page. It's a simple message. And yet at the same time, it speaks to something that is incredibly powerful. And we know this, right? Because we have all experienced forgiveness, haven't we? We have been forgiven. Amen? Are you sure? We've been forgiven. And this is a powerful, a powerful thing in our lives. That Jesus does something very unique in this part of the prayer. He has tied our own forgiveness to how well we forgive others. Think about that. I mean, we know this. We've heard messages about this before. But think about the ramifications of that. He even kind of expounds upon it even more in, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. He says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not, do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So now it becomes a little harder, doesn't it? It might be difficult for us to admit that, they were, that we were wrong, that we sinned. But I think in lots of ways the challenge of forgiving somebody else is harder. But it's pretty clear. If you want to be forgiven, then you must. We must forgive others. And I'm not just talking about the small stuff. I'm not talking about, I think I, I, I stepped on Ian's toes the other day, physically. Uh, maybe in other ways, I don't know. He hasn't shared that with me. He's probably forgiven me already. But, you know, we can bump into one another. We can accidentally upset one another. We can bruise one another. And, and those things are maybe just a little shallow. We maybe irritated us for, for a day. What we're talking about here is the deep wounds, the incredibly painful things that we can inflict on one another. Certainly out in the world, right? Now, I was just talking with somebody before services about how the feast is so much like a bubble. We live in this bubble. I think Ian asked yesterday who turned on the television. We don't turn on the television. We don't want to know. I want to live in the kingdom of God. Why would I want to bring that into my bubble? I like my bubble. And yet, the world can pierce into it, can't it? We have this incredible, you know, feelings of goodwill and, and joy and satisfaction that we're here at God's feast and we're, celebrate, we're celebrating the future. And yet, the world can pierce that joy at any moment. So I'm talking about these deep wounds of unforgiveness. So to further illustrate this, I, I, I struggled with this story because it, it's upsetting. But as I was researching for this message, I came across a, a, a paper that highlighted this story. And so I was curious. And I, so I went and found kind of a full narrative, the story of a 10-year-old boy. And parts of this is a little disturbing, but we'll get through that. Because what you see afterwards is the real joy. What you see afterwards is an incredible example of forgiveness. This story was, uh, is kind of the version told um, at the BaptistStandard.com website. <coughs> and you may have heard of this individual. It starts, on December 20th, 1974, Chris Carrier was an excited fifth grade boy. He had been released at noon for the Christmas holidays. 
sunshine had warmed things up enough that he was carrying his blue, blue windbreaker as he walked down the street, or rather as he uh, got on the school bus. Then the school bus had dropped him at the corner and he approached his house in the middle of the block. A carefree boy, as carefree as any boy could be. He looked up to see a man approaching him. The man was smiling and seemed very friendly as he said, you must be Hugh Carrier's boy. You look just like him. Carrier remembers feeling proud that the man could see the resemblance to his father. And as they talked, the man referred to his mother by her nickname, used only by family and friends. He told me, Carrier said, he was giving a party for my father and asked if I wanted to help him decorate. Carrier recalled, <clears throat> we walked, I uh, walked with the man to a nearby youth center where his motorhome was parked. And then they began traveling north out of Miami into a rural area. After a while, Carrier realized that he recognized fewer landmarks and was growing concerned when the man said he thought he had missed a turn and pulled into a side road and took out a map. The fifth grader was handed the map and told to look for a particular road. He said, he told me the road to look for and said that he needed to get something from the back of the motorhome. Carrier recalled, I was looking for the road, not a least, not a least bit afraid, when I felt this sharp pain, like you feel from a shot at the doctor's office or a bee sting. And it was in my left shoulder. It was sharp, but it didn't last long. And I turned to see if I could see a bee or anything behind me. But he was standing there holding an ice pick. And he had just stabbed me. The man pulled Carrier from the seat, dropped him to the floor, and started stabbing him. Being brought up in the church, he said, I remember praying, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Then he, then he said, why are you doing this? You're my father's friend. And he tried to protect himself. The man continued. And it continued on for a little while. And then finally it stopped. And Carrier said that he remembered not being afraid after it stopped. And the man was clearly deranged because he started talking nice to him again. And, and said that he was going to take him to a place where his father would come pick him up. He said the pain from the stab wounds was virtually nil. And the bleeding was virtually nil. I was thinking this was almost over and I was going to see my dad soon. Doctors later would discover that none of the wounds were more than half an inch deep something for which Carrier gives God complete credit. There's really no other explanation, he said. A full-grown man ought to have been able to easily kill a small boy with an ice pick. For the words, <clears throat> for the wounds to have not gone deeper, either he hesitated or the Lord stopped him. The man drove him to uh, Turner River Road, a wide roadway in a sparsely populated area. It was about dusk as the man told the, told the boy that they had reached the spot. He was very cordial and said, this is where your dad will come and get you. They walked a little way from the road to a property line fence post. In my mind, it was the best possible solution. He was going to let me go and my father was coming, and my father was coming soon. I was happy, he said. The man then caught Carrier looking away, put a small revolver against his temple, and pulled the trigger, and left the boy for dead. The bullet went behind the left eye and exited out of the right side. 
through carrier's forehead, severing the optic nerve of the left eye. That was dusk on December 20th, the same day that carrier had been abducted. Six days later, on the afternoon of December 26th, Carrier awoke from his slumber. Under the canopy of God's grace, I had lived for six days in the Everglades without shelter from the elements or the many wild animals there, Carrier said. He also awoke without fear. He said he never saw a gun, doesn't remember even hearing a sound. He awoke about dusk, about the time, same time that he had been shot. I thought I'd fallen asleep for a short nap and better get out by the road because my dad was going to be there soon to pick me up. In the remote area, he might have sat on the rock next to the road for days before anyone came by. But a man on a hunting trip with his two children soon came, they soon came by uh, in his pickup truck. He saw this little boy with two black eyes and bloody clothes and a little disorientated sitting by the roadside. So he stopped. He took me to his hunting trailer and fed me some soup and called the sheriff's office. He'd been shot. He'd been stabbed. And yet, the man that picked him up didn't recognize that because his wounds in the end were really light by comparison to what they could have been. After a little while, Carrier was taken to hospital and reunited with his family. But it wasn't until two days uh, after he was found and put into the hospital that the doctors realized that he had been shot. His face was bruised and swollen. And it wasn't until they were actually looking and, and trying to understand why he couldn't see out of his left eye that they realized what had happened. While he, had been, while he had not been frightened through much of the ordeal, fear eventually did become a part of Carrier's life. My security in this world was shattered, he said. Somebody out there wanted me dead, and I didn't know why, and I didn't know who. The police and the family identified a suspect. The police were absolutely certain that David McAllister was the culprit, but they lacked the evidence to take him to trial. While the trauma stayed with Carrier for a few days, the incident gradually faded to the background of his life. 22 years later, however, that changed when a police officer who had worked the case saw McAllister lying in a bed in a nursing home. He was bedridden and blinded by glaucoma. The officer told McAllister that he was no longer in danger of punishment and encouraged him to confess to the crime so that the family could have closure. Eventually, McAllister did confess that he was the man who had kidnapped Carrier, stabbed and shot him. Carrier was called and asked if he wanted to see the man. He said he certainly did. I think the policeman who called thought it was going to be some painful confrontation where I could tell him off or take a swing at him, he said. But I had forgiven him years before. At the time, Carrier's wife was in Texas preparing to move the family to San Marcos from Florida. So he took a friend with him. On the way over, he said, it will be easy to say you forgive him, but it won't make a big difference in his life unless he says he's sorry. They entered the man's room, and without identifying himself, Carrier told McAllister that he understood that he had confessed to hurting a boy a long time ago. He asked McAllister if he wanted to talk about it. He said, no, I didn't say anything, and I didn't confess to anything. I was crushed. I had prepared to forgive this man, and now he was saying he hadn't done anything. Carrier's friend asked the man seemingly innocuous questions about his history, his history with the family, until he got around to asking about the man's experience with the boy. McAllister started weeping, 
and again admitted his crime. Only then did Carrier identify himself as the boy who had been kidnapped. Over the next six days, Carrier visited McAllister five times. I told him that I forgave him, and all there was between us now was a newfound friendship. Carrier said, I also told him that I had a relationship with Jesus Christ and that I wanted our friendship to extend beyond this life. I also tried to do what it says in 1 Peter 4, to give an account for the hope in my life. I let him know that he had not robbed me of anything. He did not need to carry around a load of guilt. I had graduated from high school, college, and seminary, was married and had two daughters, and loved my life. Carrier also made sure McAllister had time to talk about his life. After they built their friendship, Carrier introduced his kidnapper, the man who stabbed him and shot him, to Jesus Christ. Three weeks after McAllister accepted Christ as Savior, he died. I cannot explain with adequate words the change in that man who had been a prisoner to his memories, Carrier said. Some say how awful that he didn't spend a day in prison. I say he suffered far worse. The Lord was slow cooking him, tenderizing him, until he was ready to hear my testimony. Many also find it hard to believe that Carrier was able to forgive McAllister. This experience left me with a choice. Do I look at myself as a victim of tragic circumstances that has left me physically scarred and emotionally changed? Or do I look at myself as a receiver of blessings beyond belief? I should have been killed by David McAllister when he stabbed me many times with an ice pick. I should have been killed when I was shot in the head at point-blank range. If I was not immediately killed, I should have bled to death in the six days that I lay there. It was December. I had no shelter. The elements could have killed me, if not the wild animals in the area. I choose to consider myself the receiver of miracles and blessings, Carrier said. By the grace of God, David McAllister failed. But Christ died on the cross and was victorious for all time. Because of that victory, I can forgive. This picture right here, the man on the left, on the right, on your right there, is Chris Carrier with his family and his wife. There he is, not a victim, but a recipient of God's grace and his protection. You know, it's sombering, isn't it? Needless to say, in my household, after I read that message, it was no, I, I, that story, it was another opportunity to talk to my boys about the danger of strangers, about the risks that are out there in the world. And they're not much younger than, than Chris was. So what can we say to this kind of story? There are some of us that have experienced this kind of trauma, or that's this kind of trauma to a family member. Most of us, fortunately, don't have to deal with that. But we do deal with trauma. We do deal with the trespasses that others have laid on us, don't we? We have wounds from those trespasses. We have pain from those trespasses. Yet this story serves as a reminder, an incredible, powerful reminder of the power of forgiveness. Now certainly David McAllister was a recipient of forgiveness, wasn't he? But the kind of forgiveness that I'm talking about 
is the wand that we give. And the benefit that we have from giving it. If someone like Chris Carrier can forgive somebody that hurt him so badly, then surely we can do the same. Those that have wronged us, betrayed us, trespassed against us, surely we can do the same. If you remember, Chris prayed during his assault that God would forgive his attacker because he didn't know what he was doing. Jesus' example right there with him. That's a tremendous example. And if you ever doubt whether or not teaching our kids is beneficial, in this boy's life, it gave him a weapon. It gave him a defense against incredible evil. And he was able to reach out in that moment with the most powerful prayer that has ever been prayed. Because that, of course, was Jesus' prayer shortly before his death. And I wonder, was the prayer just as much for those that were crucifying Jesus as it was for him? Because unforgiveness produces things in people that Jesus could not afford to have in him if he was to be the pure Lamb of God being sacrificed for our sins. So, I'm going to recruit you guys. As Sean mentioned earlier, last year I threw out stuff. I was contacted by the attorneys and uh, <laughs> told not to do that again. But what I'm actually going to do, I've recruited some of our young people, and they're going to hand out a little lock. And attached to each lock is a couple of note cards. And we don't have enough for every person to have a lock. So you'll have to share. I know that's tough to share, especially, you know, in families sometimes. But if you guys would share, maybe one per family, or if you're obviously by yourself, please take one. And then keep those note cards out because you've got some work to do. I'm going to have you write three different affirmations, three different statements that will maybe help us as we study this powerful, powerful tool that we have in, in forgiveness. Forgiveness can heal, it can relieve, it can restore, and it can set free. It can unlock trapped individuals. It can unlock trapped and caged hearts. It is central to the Christian faith, isn't it? Jesus put it in the example prayer. It is that important. It is a vital skill that we need to learn to do better. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Everybody got one yet? He ran out. Do we have some more folks here that still need them? If we've got any more left up front here. Chrissy, right, right up here. <laughs> Lucille, did you need one? As you can see, you're probably glad I didn't throw these things out. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we, how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we grieve the heart of God? Let's ask it a different way. What does the Holy Spirit want? What does God want more than anything else? 
for us to forgive and be forgiven. Because at that point, that's where everything starts, isn't it? That's where new life starts. The critical moment of being forgiven and forgiving. He says, let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When we fail to forgive, I think we all know this. We've all observed this. When we fail to forgive, something happens to us. We've seen it, haven't we? We've maybe even experienced it. I have. I've lived it. And if we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure we've all experienced a failure to forgive. Unforgiveness. When we fail to forgive, we plant, as it says in verse 31, the seed of bitterness. The seed of bitterness, and then this seed is fed and watered by wrath and anger. Thoughts of maybe revenge, getting back at that person. Maybe, maybe we're not bold enough to do something to them, but maybe, maybe they'll get what they deserve from somewhere. Wrath, anger, and it produces a really ugly condition called clamor. Do you know what clamor is? Kind of a clamoring noise. Clamor is screaming, shouting, yelling, vehement anger, screaming. We've seen people do that. Maybe if you've lived in an apartment complex, you've heard people do that to one another. Hey, maybe we've done it to one another. Screaming, yelling. And then what happens when we engage in screaming and yelling in a shouting match? Four letter words. Cursing, right? Evil speaking. Unforgiveness leads to this bitter and ruined heart. It's not the kind of heart that God wants us to have. Whenever I have failed to forgive, that's what happens to my heart. And although I'm pretty strange, I don't think I'm all that unique. I think it happens to all of us. I've had many enemies. You guys had enemies? Oh, yeah. Only one of us? Only two of us. Apparently it's us. That's the problem. You guys have had enemies. If you've been in the workplace, you've had enemies. Right? That nemesis. <clears throat> I've had nemesis. Nemesi. But... I'm pretty sure I'm going to end up with some more, too, because I'm still here, and apparently I'm probably part of the equation. But we've had enemies. We'll probably have enemies. We're not going to be done with forgiving, are we? We're going to have to learn to do this and learn to do it better. But whenever we fail to forgive, those enemies. Have you noticed the enemy doesn't really care? That enemy seems to go on through life, experiencing life, doing what they were doing before. Now, maybe somebody very close, maybe a family member, maybe there's some damage in the relationship there, but, but let's say an enemy at work doesn't doesn't bother them that you're not talking to them. They probably quite like it, don't they? So who is hurt in all of this? Who is imprisoned in all of this? We are. We are imprisoned by unforgiveness. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to look them in the eye. 
I'm not going to engage with them. I'm not going to go to any functions where they are. We lock ourselves away. Trapped in a prison of our own making, replaying over and over again all those events, what, what they said and how, what we said. And, oh, I wish I'd said this. Right? Anybody have that moment? Come on. Yeah, everybody has that moment. Trying to find ways to justify ourselves. We can even, as I mentioned before, devise plans. Wouldn't it be really cool if that person had this happen to them? You know, maybe God could, uh, you know, get them eaten by bears or something. Plotting their downfall. I've seen people plot other people's downfalls before. That's what unforgiveness looks like. So the first thing I want you to write down on your card is this quote from uh, Max Lucado. There we go. Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and realizing you were the prisoner. And if you didn't end up with a note card, please, please write it down in your notes. Or your iPad, your smartphone. You need to take a picture of it with your smartphone, I guess. Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and realizing you were the prisoner. <coughs> I've observed something else about having unforgiveness in the heart. The same symptoms that Paul talks about, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice, they don't just come out at or around that one, that person that we are failing to forgive. You notice that? Maybe you haven't noticed that. Maybe you think, well, I'm, I've got this buried. Nobody knows that I am really embittered towards that person. Nobody knows that I'm not forgiving them. We may have even buried it for so long that we forgot that we did that. Parked it away. Having this unforgiving heart towards someone that has trespassed us. The thing is, in my observation, that bitterness, that anger, that malice comes out anyway. It comes out at other times. It comes out when somebody else does something similar. It comes out when there are frustrations and challenges in life. And this is source over here. It's kind of the, the opposite of, of, Ian's, of Ian's joy bank, right? It's this bitterness bank that we keep plopping trespasses into and unforgiveness into. And it can come out anywhere and we don't even realize it it's there for all to see it's in the words that we say it's in how we treat others perhaps causing even more resentment and trespass in others right speaking so harshly that others are are offended and wounded and and then then what does trespassing become a virus unforgiveness becomes a virus. We spread it around. You know, those James in, in his letter was, he was talking about the tongue in chapter 3 and verse 11. It's applicable to this too. Because he says, does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. If bitterness, unforgiveness is in there, it will come out. It will come out in our actions. We can't be both salt water and fresh. It's a sobering thought. 
our entire manner and personality can be so affected and we maybe not even notice it. Instead of being kind and tender-hearted, as Paul has told us to be, instead of being patient and forgiving, we become angry and impatient. So let me ask you a question. Is unforgiveness a sin? Is unforgiveness a sin? Anybody think unforgiveness is a sin? Okay. A few. The Apostle Paul thought so. He puts it in a rather bad list of things that will come on this world, will come on this earth, and maybe even come on the church as well. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. Unforgiving. Slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away unforgiving is right there in the middle of it isn't it being unforgiving is a sin <coughs> and it is a challenge for us but it's an interesting phrase have you ever looked at that phrase having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof what does it what good does it do us if we just look like a Christian? Right? We just look godly. But then we deny the power that is in godliness. There's real power in godliness. There's real power to change lives, our own life, in godliness. And an element of godliness is what? Forgiveness. Being forgiven and being forgiving we saw that in the life of Chris Carrier he brought his own real life enemy a man that tried to murder him he brought him to Jesus now we may have doctrinal differences but without a doubt, he brought that man to repentance, didn't he? And through the Spirit of God, he opened his heart and his mind. And we know. We know that there is resurrections out there in the future that will give this man an opportunity to become a member of the family of God. To become a son of God. Forgiveness. In Matthew 18 and verse 21... And we find a very familiar passage. You know, Peter wanted to know, is there a hard limit to forgiveness? I mean, give us some structure here, Jesus. I mean, are there some rules here that I can follow? Because surely, if someone constantly wrongs us, we, we have to get to a point where we cut them off, right? Three strikes and you're out, or something. Well, we know the answer to that. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Because, you know, six seems not quite enough, right? Eight, that's a little too generous. Seven sounds good to me. Jesus said to him, do not say, <clears throat> I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But he was not able to pay. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife 
and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him his debt. Right there, that's me. And that's you. We have no way of paying back. We have no way of paying the debt to God for our trespasses. We just do not have the currency to pay it back. And even if we could be sold, and everything that we have, and our family, and our children, could be sold, it would not pay the debt back. And God has offered us, just as this master offered his servant, complete release, a complete jubilee from all of his debts, freely given. And it's interesting, that's not even what he asked for, is it? He just asked for more time to pay it back. And the master said, never mind, I'm wiping it, I'm wiping it clean. That's us. But then that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Small change by comparison. Tiny. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat. Pay me what you owe. Hope that's not us now, right? This fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were grieved, and they came and told their master all that had been done. And his master, after he had called him, said unto him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant? just as I had pity on you. And his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers until he could pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And Jesus is talking to Peter. Do you think Peter got the message? I think he got the message. God will put us back under lock and key. God will not forgive if we do not forgive. None of us want to be this wicked servant. But we are being exactly that when we hold on to that grudge, when we have that unforgiving heart for our enemy when we're not willing to forgive others. <coughs> Instead, we should, as Paul says in Colossians 3.12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. It's interesting, isn't it, that in all of this instruction that Jesus has given us, that Paul has given us about forgiveness, in all of this, there's something that has been absent from it. Something that in our human reasoning we, should, we might think should be there. Have you noticed they never said, when your enemy repents? When your husband or wife repents, when your family member repents, when your brother in the church repents, then you can forgive them. They didn't say that. They just said, forgive as you have been forgiven. And it goes against our human reasoning. Because, of course, it's God's reasoning. 
and we're called to have God's reasoning. When I started to kind of prepare for this message, along with wishing I had that song to precede it, I also wondered if there was something else in, in, in forgiveness that we were missing. There was another layer to all of this. Maybe a physical component. Because I've observed in individuals that have just gotten trapped in this unforgiveness and this bitterness of heart. I've observed physical changes in those individuals. So I started doing some looking around and I found a really interesting article. It was an article entitled The New Science of Forgiveness. It was by Dr. Everett Worthington, uh, Worthington rather, author and physicist. And he says this, many people hate to ask for or grant forgiveness when they feel they have nothing to gain in return. But a new line of research suggests something different. This research has shown that Chris Carrier's story isn't an anomaly. Forgiveness isn't just practiced by saints or martyrs, nor does it benefit only its recipients. Instead, studies are finding connections between forgiveness and physical, mental, and spiritual health, and the evidence that it plays in the key role in the health of families, communities, and nations. Though this research is still young, it has already produced some exciting findings and raised some important questions. So I was like, well, well what are those benefits? I mean, this has got to be measurable, right? If, if, if psychologists, psychiatrists, scientists were, were researching this. So I came across another passage in his same article. He said, in one study, Charlotte Whitbillet, a psychologist at Hope College, asked people to think about someone who had hurt, mistreated, or offended them. While they thought about this person, and his or her past offense. She monitored, monitored their blood pressure, heart rate, facial muscle tension, and sweat gland activity. To ruminate on an old transgression is to practice unforgiveness. Sure enough, in Whitbitlet's uh, research, when people called a, or recalled a grudge, their physical arousal soared, their blood pressure and heart rate increased, and they sweated more. Ruminating about their grudges was stressful, and subjects found the rumination unpleasant. It made them feel angry, sad, anxious, and less in control. I found that fascinating, tying back to what Paul said, I think, in Ephesians, about having self-control. Unforgiveness leads us to have a lack of control. They also asked her subjects, uh, the, their subjects to try to emphasize with their offenders or imagine forgiving them. When they practiced forgiveness, their physical arousal coasted downward. They showed no more of a stress reaction than a normal wakefulness produces. They just went back to normal. Calm, whatever their normal is, they went right back to that. When they had forgiveness. It's fascinating that these kinds of studies from 2004 onwards are finding the same truths that we knew were in the Bible all along. The same healing properties that God already built in to the kind of behavior that he wants us to have. Clamor, a lack of self-control. These things are being measured by, by psychiatrists and are triggered by a lack of forgiveness. They are the very opposite of the fruits of the Spirit that I think Ian mentioned the other day. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. There's that self-control. Against such there is no law. Then Worthington continues, he says, in my own lab, we wanted to determine whether people's stress levels are related to their ability to forgive a romantic partner. Ah, 
Okay, Matt, now you're getting into dangerous water. You're going to be talking about romantic relationships, partners. But that's the most critical relationships we have, isn't it? With our husband, with our wife. It's important that we can practice forgiveness because we're going to need it, aren't we? Because we hurt and are hurt by the ones that are closest to us. He said, we measured levels of cortisol in the saliva of 39 people who rated their relationship as either terrific or terrible. So they wanted either end of the scale. Cortisol is a hormone that metabolizes fat for quick response to stress. And after the stress end ends, it deposits the fat back to where it's easily accessible. Any idea where that is? Around the waist. That's right. Around the waist. People with poor or recently failed relationships tended to have a higher baseline levels of cortisol. They also scored worse on a test that measures their general willingness to forgive. When they were asked to think about their relationship, they had more cortisol reactivity. That is, their stress hormone jumped. Those jumps in stress were highly correlated with their unforgiving attitudes towards their partner. People with very happy relationships were not without stresses and strains between them, but forgiving their partner's faults seem to keep their physical stress in the normal range. You want to be healthy? You want to be free of stress or some of the stress? Forgive your partner. Forgive your wife. Forgive your husband. How many times? How many times? Yeah, as many times as necessary, right? Until death you do part, I think is how it goes. It's amazing. There are all the things that God tells us to do, to build into our, our new creature, our new character, our Christ-like nature that he has asked us to build with him. All those things help our physical life now. Help us to have better relationships now. Help us to have better health now. That is our creator. Even when things in life don't go to plan. Even when relationships have problems and trespasses. If we can forgive. We can restore. We can restore relationships and our physical health at the same time. I wonder if we could market this as a new kind of you know, weight loss strategy. We can forgive. If we have that forgiving nature, then we have the mind of Christ. But there's a nagging question to all of this. Maybe you've asked yourself this. Why? Why do we like to hold on to grudges? Why do we not just automatically forgive? What is it about the human being that just wants to have increased stress levels, increased waistline, increased challenges and difficulties and bitterness in our hearts? What is it about us? Crazy bunch of people. Perhaps it's an excuse. Maybe... Maybe it's a defensive reaction. I don't know. Maybe we just want to stay the way we are. We don't want to change. We don't. That's too difficult for us to engage in. I've got to, I've got to think about my emotions. And, and, and I'm a guy and I'm not supposed to have any of those. Or they're too painful. And we can't handle that pain. Perhaps we've just been unforgiving for so long that we have forgotten how else to be. 
But I think Worthington can give us further insight on this because <coughs> later on in his article, he cites another study that took place at the University of Georgia. And they reviewed 17 empirical studies on forgiveness in relationships. By their analysis, these studies suggest that when partners hurt each other, there's often a shift in their goals for their relationship. They might have previously professed undying love and worked hard to cooperate with their partner. But if this partner betrays them, suddenly they become more competitive. They focus on getting even and keeping score instead of enjoying each other. They concentrate on not losing an argument rather than on a compromise. They use past transgressions to remind the partner of his, his or her failings. Forgiveness, asserts Fitchum is his, uh, and his colleagues, can help restore more benevolent and cooperative goals to relationships. So could it be that we hold on to all of these grudges and these trespasses and we're not willing to give them up and forgive because we are afraid? We have fear. And we then transplant love with fear. And then we engage in defensive tactics, winning every argument. This is the only way I can get control in this situation. That's the only way that you can't hurt me anymore. Fear. Never again, we might say. I'm not going to let that happen to me again even with those that are closest to us. But as we can see, it doesn't really work, does it? That kind of attitude and that kind of life does not work for us. It doesn't work in our physical life. It is not healthy. And it certainly will not allow us to move forward in our Christian life. God does not want someone in his kingdom to be fearful and unforgiving. He cannot afford for any one of us to enter into eternal life and not be able to forgive, no matter what the trespass. Jesus showed us the way. He gave us the example. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, we read that beautiful passage that we all look forward to. He said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So if there's no more pain, then there's no more unforgiveness. All has been forgiven. Everyone that is there has forgiven one another. And God has forgiven everyone that's there. And then he said, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The start of verse 8, it says there, but the cowardly. The cowardly are in that list. The fearful. We have to overcome our fear of forgiving. Otherwise, we're in that list again. Locked away 
by our own unforgiveness. I'm hoping that during the message today you have thought about someone, some situation that maybe you haven't deal, dealt with yet, that maybe you haven't forgiven yet. Perhaps it's an old trespass. Perhaps it's something new. Perhaps it's something that's going on right now under the stresses of this feast. Either way, I would ask you to please write a word or a sentence or a statement on your card about that situation. Write it down. And tonight, take that with you and pray to God about it and forgive. You may not be able to talk to that person. That person may be long gone. It could be a parent or another relative. It could be a stranger and you don't know who they were. It could be anyone. For whatever reason, whether you can talk to them about it or not, you can still forgive. I know this from my own experience, and you do too, that when we pray and we forgive that person that has trespassed against us, the shackles fall off, the pain is lessened, if not gone away altogether. I encourage you to take that name, that person, that situation to God in prayer to pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors.